0: Imagine losing complete control of your body. How terrifying must it be to unwillingly surrender your mind and soul to a higher, well, lower power. I'd imagine that it's much like living life in third person, watching the world pass you by from behind your own eyes as a malevolent force makes every move for you. Suddenly you're just a pawn in the divine game of good and evil. There are so many stories throughout pop culture and history of people getting possessed by demons or the devil, but this episode is not about movies or TV shows. We've given you a taste of the madness that is demonic possession in other episodes this season, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much that goes into it, and sometimes the evil isn't divine. It's very, very human. Hey guys, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Haunted Detective Podcast. I'm your favorite host, Kelsey Childs, but everyone calls me the paranormal Sherlock Holmes. And with me... Your favorite
1: co-host, Pamela J.
0: So I know we mentioned very briefly, and we're going to go into this a little bit before we kick this episode off, but we said in the season special that this season special is brought to you by Technical Difficulties. And we were not lying, and... I think it might be synergistic to talk about some of the technical difficulties we were having. Because Pamela and I were joking that this episode about possessions is possessed.
1: It's really been an absolute nightmare trying to record this episode.
0: This is the fourth time we're doing it.
1: God, so many wasted takes.
0: So basically what happened was... We record on the software called Riverside and Pamela kept getting kicked out. Her mic kept going mute, then I kept getting kicked out. Then I was buffering, then my internet would go out on my computer, even though it was fine on my phone. And so this is the first day recording only. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna go to the bathroom. I'll come back, we'll try to finish recording. And I come back in and the ceiling fan is on. The ceiling fan, that's a pull to start. So there's absolutely no reason why that should have turned on by itself and so all this stuff keeps happening and then finally we're like okay we're gonna call it so i go out into my living room and the living room lamp that is also a pull to start my cats play with that all the time they like will hang off of it the pull to start thing and everything and they cannot turn it on because it takes a lot of pressure and force to turn it on and it was on Then I let my dog out of her crate. And this is a dog that was trained not to bark. So she does not bark. She just kind of grunts and groans a little bit.
1: She started barking at the empty hallway. So while Kelsey was getting haunted, um, I was sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) We called it and I went to bed. And she was being attacked by a
0: Apparently. But then the next day, when we tried to record again, Pamela was at work and her ceiling started leaking right onto her head. Yeah, that was really weird. And then later that night we're recording. I leave to go to the bathroom because don't judge me. I have a bad bladder. Okay. And Pamela, I come back and she's completely freaked out because something came like crashing down behind her, but she couldn't find the source of it.
1: Yeah, that was really weird. I don't know if that recording still exists, but it didn't pick up on the microphone. It didn't pick up. It did not, no. I'm so shocked by that. It was pretty loud. I thought it came from, I because I have headphones on, I thought it came from your side. So I was like, damn, I think something crashed like over on Kelsey's side. But I felt the vibration of it. Like if something were to fall and you feel it like hit the floor, I felt that. So I turned around and I was like, oh shit, there's nothing there. So I don't, I think Chris, I don't remember if Chris was, um, he was not, our editor was
0: not in, the he South- wasn't? no, he was not on Riverside with us. So I oh. asked him the next day because what happens next is Chris calls me and he goes, "I can't use this. This audio is completely distorted."
1: Oh my God, it was such a nightmare.
0: So, without further ado, after months, it feels like months. So I said months, <laughs> but really it's just days and hours of trying to get this episode to you guys. Let's open the case file on episode four, possessions. And I promise you guys are not going to get possessed listening to this episode. <laughs> possessions. Most of us know what a possession is or what it looks like. Basically, your body is under the control of a supernatural being or force. But there are many cultures that fear this phenomenon. According to the National Institute of Health, of our global societies have deeply ingrained beliefs that someone's identity can be replaced with a spirit, entity, demon, or malevolent force. These ways of thinking can actually be traced all the way back to the Stone Age. Although it is widely believed by most anthropologists and archaeologists that a lot, if not most, ancient examples of possession can be explained by misdiagnoses of epilepsy or other psychological disorders, but we will get further into that in episode six. It has also been found that most cultures that believe in possessions have a deep connection with a polytheistic religion or believe in reincarnation and or the spiritual afterlife. The symptoms of possession include behavioral changes such as random onset aggression, amnesia and fugue state changes in voice and language skills such as the ability to speak another language or speak in a new tone and when I say this I mean like you have this little boy and suddenly he starts talking like a deep ass man with a
1: full grown voice like oh I'm not Joshua anymore I'm a demon you know (laughs) I'm not possessed I can't do it that is so unscary (laughs) You do a better job! Um... (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Then don't
0: judge me. I'm Johnny! Johnny! (laughs) The inability to feel pain and involuntary movements. This basically means that the victim's body displays movements that they are not actively trying to initiate, like jerky motions, convulsions, twitching... All the signs of having epilepsy. Yeah.
1: Does this include like levitation?
0: I believe so. But I don't know if levitation is considered
1: to be an official diagnostic point. No, not of epilepsy. Of like a demonic. Like of a, of a possession. I believe in paranormal stuff. I'm a little harder sold on possession. I. That, I mean, that's fair. It's... I feel like it's one of those things that's extremely hard to prove.
0: Well, here's my thought about it, is that we have hundreds of thousands of documented cases of exorcisms and possessions. I believe that 0.001% of all of those are real. I'm sold on hauntings, a little harder sold on possessions. I don't believe that millions of people a year are getting possessed by demons. There are not enough demons to go around to do that, so... Yeah, I agree with that statement. But with that in mind, I would like to talk about some of the more prominent and vicious demon types around the world.
1: Did a door open on your end? No. What are you talking about? I I just turned around because I thought I heard my office door open like how Rio pushes it in. yeah and it's closed what <laughs> is happening I'm not even fucking with you right now I'm so dead ass I'm gonna cry okay just fucking ignore it let's go fucking ignore it I'm gonna start crying I cry when I'm scared okay You're not, don't be scared it's okay <laughs> it's okay
0: I'm not okay. crying I'm laughing okay the irony is too-
1: my back is towards the door. <laughs> I just don't like that. I'm keeping my head at an angle because I just want to see. Oh my God. Let me text Chris and tell him it's happening again. This is such bullshit. <laughs> oh, I thought it was my dog. <laughs> my dog's not there. I If you can't fucking hear that, in the recording i'm i'm you probably won't be able to hear it but i it's just it's a squeak of a door opening swear to god <laughs> you're hallucinating i fu- i wish i was
0: that's I'm unfortunately spooky. so yeah.
1: that's ooky spooky dude fucking leave me alone thank you stinky possession is not
0: just seen in the Western world and biblical religions. We talked about exorcisms in previous episodes and how far back that specific practice went. This is a worldwide phenomenon that has many names, but the victims mostly display the same symptoms. There are a few prominent demon types around the world, and none of them are called stinky. Stinky. But I want to talk about some of the more vicious and well-known ones. Not for their smell. <laughs> Actually, I wouldn't know that.
1: I, I thought that uh, a sign of a demon was the smell of sulfur. Girl, you'd be watching too much Supernatural. I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> They're just so hot. I just can't stop watching.
0: I want everyone listening. And yes, that includes you, Pam. Okay. So close your eyes and picture this. It's a dark, foggy night, and you're riding your bike home from a friend's house on a dirt road. The ethereal stars begin to fall further into darkness as the trees wearing their winter shed close in above you. The shadows take on a malleable form as everything stands still and quiet, the universe holding its breath for what's next to come. The bike's front tires hit a rock, and your entire body jolts forward as the ground comes rushing up to greet you in the most unwelcome way. You lay there, the cool and frosty dirt keeping the pounding in your head at bay, but something sounds off in the distance. Catterwall or a woman crying? It's hard to tell, but one thing's for certain. It's getting closer and closer, unnervingly so. You feel it. Like a darkened energy, but what meets your eyes as you lift your head is no woman or injured deer. A vaguely human creature stands about 200 feet away, just ahead on the trail. It has dark, ragged skin pulled taut over its protruding bones. It's bald in almost its entirety, and yellowed, rotted fangs sit in its snarling mouth, the one that slowly leads way to the skeletal face of a deer. Its antlers are as sharp as knives. They reach up to the trees and blend with the branches behind it. You can see where this thing might once have been a person, but whoever it is or was is long gone. The creature as it stands is there, but not at the same time. A wisp on the wind, a shadow brought to life. You know immediately that you stand no chance against the Wendigo. So here's the thing. I want to go into this story with an acknowledgement. This mythos is from the indigenous people of America and Canada and us telling it here is for educational purposes regarding possessions in different cultures. We are not sharing their stories for people to go and turn it into a trend or a fad like what happened with skinwalkers. Not everything is a skinwalker.
1: Yeah. And even if you are a paranormal believer like Kelsey or a skeptic like me, it's important to respect where these stories came from.
0: Absolutely. These are not just stories to some, they are a warning of the evil that lurks in the shadows of the forest. Wendigos are known to the Algonquin, Ojibwe, Naskapi, Inu, and various other indigenous tribes as giant malevolent creatures who are cursed to constantly scour the earth to sate their insatiable hunger for human flesh. They are the product of possession, in all manners of speaking. When a person either maliciously decides to partake in cannibalism, or just does so to survive, or when they are excessively greedy or gluttonous, an evil spirit will take over their body and slowly turn them into the monster that is Wendigo. Although, Pamela, before you say anything, these legends seem to come to life in the late 1800s and 1920s, when a Wendigo was spotted several times in Rosseau, Minnesota. Here's what's creepy about this, though. Every time the Wendigo was seen, a tragic death would follow. An omen or
1: a silent killer? Um, it kind of sounds like an omen rather than a killer to me. I'm not sure why, but it, it's like if you see it, you know, it's like bad luck. So kind of
0: like the Banshee, Headless Horseman and Hatman? Yeah, I it,
1: at least to me, that in my In my opinion, it just sounds like a a very bad omen, like you're on a dark path.
0: I think the technical um, way to say that is a harbinger of death. Yes, that's not ominous (laughs) at all. The last thing that you want to run into is a djinn. The creature might appear to you as a snake, scorpion, lizard or human, but be assured that once you've realized what you've encountered, it might already be too late. In Arabic and Muslim mythos and folklore, a jinn is a clever divine being that is able to shapeshift and possess humans. Think of a jinn like a genie, although much less Robin Williams and much more nefarious behaviors.
1: Oh, Robin Williams!
0: They are called on for magical protection or help, typically royalty and rich men, but sometimes evil witches or sorcerers can use it for their bidding. Because of this, people wear jewelry with the name of Allah written on it to protect them from getting attacked or possessed. Jinns much prefer to live in their own world among each other, but when you're possessed by one, they don't let like, go very easily. The only way to get rid of it is through an exorcism.
1: Is that where they, um, they like, have to hold you down and stuff? An exorcism? Yeah, and they, like, uh, they yell like text. I
0: honestly don't know how it's done in the Arabic religion. I don't think I've ever seen
1: an example of that of exercising a jinn. No, I think I've only seen it from a, a Catholic side in movies. I wonder if they're similar in any way.
0: Bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So, yeah, I guess that's what it sounds like. It seems uh, pretty similar in theory to a Catholic or Christian or pop culture exorcism. Yeah. In the video, he's basically just sitting cross-legged right uh, in front of the man that's possessed. And the man's thrashing and pulling around and he's holding on to his wrists and, you know, chanting, I guess you could call
1: it a religious incantation. Okay. Okay. So there's, there's some similarities between them.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, from the symptoms to the possession to the exorcism, I have found that there are more similarities than not. Huh, that's interesting. If you're ever in turmoil and disconnected from yourself, beware. You've become the perfect host for a Dybbuk. In Jewish and Yiddish folklore, there are many stories about a wandering spirit born from a man of sin, this creature is called a dibbuk, spelled D-Y-B-B-U-K. Hearing the spelling, some of you might begin to recognize what we're talking about. This creature, the dibbuk, gains access to a living person's being by severing the connection their soul has to their body and filling the space, thus taking over the host. Although Dybbuk's were not ran about until the mid-16th century due to the Jewish mystics and their interpretation of the Torah, Another explanation for the creation of a divic is the spirit of a dead person who was not properly laid to rest, thus turning
1: them, I guess, into a demon of sorts. Oh, okay. Kind of like, um, it's like those spirits that they say have, they still have business, like they have unfinished business. But the spirit will never finish their
0: business because... You have to properly lay them to rest. Exactly. But there is one thing that never changes and... I'm really sorry. (laughs) I'm going to disappoint a lot of people with this. Dibbits cannot enter inanimate objects, just living beings. It is the core lore and folklore, I guess, behind this creature. They can only enter something that is living.
1: Wait, uh, isn't isn't there like a... um, I might be remembering this wrong, but isn't there like a dibbit box? Yes,
0: and it is very infamous. So it is either fake or it has a different malevolent spirit in it. I know, I know, I can hear, I can hear the chorus of boo, boo, tomato, boo. Already, I'm sorry, okay, I don't make the rules. I didn't pretend to have a demon in a box like that eBay dude who actually came out and admitted it was a hoax, but some people still believe it's real. If there is something in that box, it is not a Dybbuk. So there could be something in the box. It is important to understand everything about these entities. By 1996, manuscripts about exercising dibbics began getting published, which is a rather large gap between the first written account of them. Although... In Chinese folk religion, spirit possession is not considered a negative thing. Jitongs, specialized shamans, have trained in the art of possession. And this is not what you might be expecting. They literally invite a spirit to inhabit their bodies so that they can give a very particular form of advice. This all started in the ancient state of Qi during the Zhao period. There were shamans who said that they were being possessed by gods. A lot of these spiritual leaders would be in charge of peasant rebellions. And it is written by Confucius that he did not like these people, he did not agree with them, and he did not believe in this sort of shamanic practice, which I think is very
1: interesting. That is super interesting.
0: Specifically, during the Boxer Rebellion or uprising, the Boxers were a secret society in China, and they were very strongly opposed to foreigners, imperialists, and Christians. The name Boxer was actually given to them by English speakers, probably American Christian missionaries, if I'm being completely honest, because of their dedicated practice of Chinese martial arts and intense weapons training. But that was not all they did. They practiced a form of spiritual possession that involved them showcasing their weapon skill while chanting incantations to summon their gods. Part of their belief was that millions of soldiers would aid them from beyond the grave in their mission of foreign nationalist and oppressive purification. They also thought themselves immune to cannons, rifles, and knives. Because of their possessions, it gave them a supernatural strength, so to say.
1: To this day, a more docile form of possession is still practiced by the Jatongs. I kind of understand that because it gives them like it's a positive aspect. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think it made them immortal necessary, but what I think is cool in a sense that it gave them like the mental strength, if that makes any sense. It's almost like a confidence thing. Like, even though they might have not been immortal to a canon, they were able to carry on as if they were. So it probably gave them this like crazy amount of strength and confidence.
0: Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, which is kind of cool. Yeah, no, it's really cool. So the thing that kind of frustrates me when I was researching this, I had a core memory learning about the Boxer Rebellion in school. But they weren't like we never learned about the shamanic practices. We never learned about the jitongs or, you know, the possessions or incantations. We learned that they were mean, terrible people who were... They were portrayed as terrorists. And I'm like, honestly, I can't blame them. You know, the Christian missionaries went over and called them boxers, which is basically colonization because they didn't understand their culture and didn't care to learn it.
1: Oh, how polite.
0: Like they didn't, these men and women didn't want Christians, imperialist people to come over and say, hey, your culture is not your own now. Your culture is now our culture and you have to do what we say. Which, to be honest, is totally fair.
1: Yeah, I mean, they had their own thing going and like other people are trying to butt in telling them that they're wrong. I'm like, just leave well enough alone, dude. Have you heard about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Like, yeah, I would get possessed to kick that out of my country. I'd be, I'd be pretty mad. I'd be like, hey, we got our own thing. Like, you guys got your own thing. That's great. But we're going to do ours. So, you know, peace be with you. There is a term that anthropologists and sociologists use
0: called ethnocentrism. Basically, this is the act of approaching someone else's culture, practice, or lifestyle with the bias of your own. So these missionaries were coming into China and they were basically ethnocentric because they were like, hey... Worship Jesus. And these men were like, no, we worship our deities. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're going to worship Jesus or you're going to hell. So I I understand, like, everyone has a right to their own practice, right? But no one has a right to push it on other people. And yeah. the globalization and the colonization because of it, due to it, of Christianity and Catholicism is absurd to me. And it just upset me remembering that these people— like. We were, I personally, I can't speak for anyone else. I was taught in alternative history when it came to the Boxer Rebellion.
1: So we learned about it. I learned about it briefly in college, but I don't think we really touched on it in high school. So it was something that I had never heard of. But my history teacher in in college was, he taught the real history. So you learned everything. Mm, Love that. It was Fantastic.
0: My anthropology professor in college was like that. I loved her to death. She was awesome. It was so good. So now that we've kind of gone over different possession types in different cultures, I want to talk about some real life recorded possessions. And some of these are interesting, I guess, on, I guess if you were looking into the concept of possession and society and culture, these stories just Fascinated me. I don't believe in most of them. I'm going to be completely honest. Yet again, Pamela and I are on the same fucking page. But I think they're fascinating. And how cool would it be? Not cool for the the victims, but how cool would it be if they were actually real and these were things that we could study and understand? And I don't know. I just. That would mean that there's heaven and there's an afterlife and it's not just death and darkness afterwards, you know?
1: Oh, don't get me into that. (laughs) You want me to go on a fucking deep dive and make everyone think about their existence? Yeah, let's talk about that. Maybe
0: the next season special? Mm. Yeah.
1: Next season special is Pamela spiraling about death. Existential crisis.
0: (laughs) In 1928, a woman walked into a convent and begged two nuns for help. Her name was Emma Schmidt, and she was possessed by a demon. In fact, this was not the first time this had happened to her. In her 46 years of life, she had a history of possession. The nuns were shocked when Emma, a Roman Catholic, devout Roman Catholic, started yelling in ancient languages and recoiling at religious relics and prayer. At one point, she even flew through the air and landed high on the wall, Time magazine quoted the incident in a 1936 article saying, quote, with lightning speed, the possessed dislodged herself from the bed and the hands of her protectors and her body carried through the air, landed high above the door of the room and clung to the wall with cat-like grips, end quote.
1: Damn, she was scaling the wall? Yes. Okay.
0: It took them several months, but a German-American capuchin friar and priest, Theophilus Reisinger, was finally able to rid Emma of the demons. He said that there was not just one, but many. Two of the names were Judas and Beelzebub. This was not Reisinger's first exorcism though, nor would it be his last. Born in 1868 in Germany, he was trained as a Campuchin monk and became well known for his expertise in exorcisms by the time he was 44. Actually, he was the most famous and sought after exorcist in the 20th century. Between 1912 and 1932, he had conducted 20 of them. That of Emma Schmidt became his most famous and inspired the book, soon to be a movie, The Exorcist. Oh, okay. It was 1842 when Gottlieb Didis started experiencing strange things in her home. Before long, she realized that her house was haunted. But the entity didn't just affect her house. She soon began to fall into random fugue or trance-like states. Finally, a priest was brought in to help her. Things then took a turn for the worst, as they usually do, and she became suddenly violent. They needed to restrain her. It took them two years to remove the demon, and it was reported that she would puke up glass, nails, and blood repeatedly.
1: What the fuck?
0: Clara Dramana Sale was 16 years old, when people in her circle overheard her making a deal with the devil. It didn't take long for things to escalate. She started speaking in ancient languages and had superhuman strength. When two priests tried to perform exorcisms on her in 1906 and 1907, they noted that holy water and crosses burned her skin. And she also levitated in front of 170 people, as you do casually. Mm -hmm. But the demon finally vacated her when a putrid smell escaped her body. I'm not sure if the demon leaving her officially was. They just witnessed
1: her like acting crazy?
0: They know, they witnessed
1: her levitate. Oh, the. Oh. Oh. That's a lot of eyewitnesses to see someone levitate. That's what I said.
0: But this was 1906 and 1907, so there wouldn't be any cameras. Very convenient. Thanks. Convenient that she got possessed in the early 1900s. (laughs) (laughs) Where I couldn't see it. Yeah, right. Wow, thanks. No cameras, Photoshopped. Yup. But to be honest, if there, let's say by some miracle, there was a camera and it was videotaped. People would look at that and say Photoshop. I mean, yeah, especially in this day and age. Michael Taylor struggled with depression, but when he met a 21-year-old priest, Marie Robinson he finally started to feel better. He attributed this to possession. He thought Marie was able to exorcise the demons, even though she had never actually performed any exorcisms on Michael. But here's the thing. Michael had a wife, and when she found out how much time he was spending with the priest, she started to believe that he was cheating on her. When confronted by his wife, Michael attacked her. This is what led to the actual exorcism that happened on October 5th, 1975. He displayed all of the symptoms of an actual possession, but it didn't actually help the real problem. The following day, he murdered his wife, but, but he was not charged or convicted. Why? He was deemed insane due to the exorcism and got off scotch-free. We love the
1: 1970s. W- 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 Hang on. Wait, not, e- not even, like, sentenced to a mental facility? From what I understand, no. Oh, my God. So she just didn't receive any justice at all? From what
0: I understand, yes, that is correct.
1: Damn, that, that really sucks. That's really sad. But it didn't actually help the real problem.
0: The following day, he murdered his wife, but he didn't just murder his wife. He ripped her eyes out, he ripped her tongue out, and he almost ripped her entire face off. Holy shit. It was a complete act of brutality. He also strangled their poodle, and he was found running around naked in the street, covered in blood. Oh my god. So he was deemed not responsible because of the exorcism. And he was sent to a hospital for two years and then spent another two years in a secured hospital wing before being released. That made me sick to my fucking stomach. Yeah. Holy shit. Okay.
1: Oh, that's so fucking sad.
0: This actually leads me to the next thing we're going to be talking about. Remember at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that sometimes the evil is more human than we realize. Yeah. There are too many instances where the exorcism was just poorly disguised abuse and torture and led to the possessed, I put that in quotes, death. And we're going to talk about two cases where the first one, the very thing happened, it was really just poorly disguised abuse. And the second one is a little more similar to good old Michael Taylor. Annalise Michael died, not because there was a demon inhabiting her body, but because of the torture she was put through because of her parents and priests, they thought she was possessed. Born in a religious Catholic family in Klingenberg, Bavaria, Germany, Annalise was no stranger to the Bible and was a very passionate follower of it too. By all means, she did not have an ideal childhood. She had epilepsy, and due to that, she suffered from very bad When you go through these things in a religious family, I hate to say it, it is a recipe for disaster. And when I say a religious family, I don't mean like, oh, we go to church every Sunday. Oh, we read the Bible. We read Bible. I mean like you are obsessively religious to an unhealthy extent because that is what her family was. She was 16 when the epilepsy first hit. She blacked out and went into a trance like state. She retained absolutely no memory of the episode. A year later, a similar thing happened. She went into a trance again, but this time she wet the bed and started seizing. To her family, though, it looked like she was possessed. But she went to a neurologist after this incident and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. We talked about this briefly last season before a refresher. Seizures in the temporal lobe or the frontal lobe cortex of your brain causes the patient to suffer from gaps in their memory, hallucinations, which could be auditory or visual and mood disorders. So depression, mood dysregulation, anger, mania, all of the sorts It's basically a free for all in your head. She started taking medication, which helped her and allowed Annalise to lead somewhat of a normal life. She enrolled in college in 1973 but her condition quickly deteriorated from there. Even though she was still taking her medication, her epilepsy came back, and with that came visual and auditory hallucinations. Because she was still taking her medication, she assumed that this wasn't her epilepsy at all. In fact, she was never epileptic. She started seeing the devil and her demons calling her profanities. They would tell her to rot in hell and called her damned. This all would happen while she was praying. So she came to the conclusion that she was possessed. But a really quick side note, we know in abusive families, and I, I would go as far as to call her family abusive, how much influence someone's family has over their self-belief systems, I guess you could say. So did she come to the conclusion that she was possessed or did she write to her family, contact her family, tell her what was happening, And her parents somehow said, oh, there's a demon in you, Annalise. There's a demon, a demon, a demon. Let me pray for you. You know, whatever it is that was said that made her come to this conclusion.
1: I think that there's a very good possibility that her family kind of ingrained that thought into her um, from when she was young, experiencing some of these issues. So it wouldn't be too far-fetched to say that maybe this thought was already in her brain, was already planted in her brain.
0: The Michael family tried to find a priest to exorcise her, but they all told the family to seek medical help. The family refusing to do so kind of damned Annalise. Her hallucinations and paranoia got worse and she started displaying the classic symptoms of a possession and some other bizarre ones. She would rip her clothes off, do 400 squats a day compulsively, Crawl around on all fours, under the table and on the floor, barking like a dog. She would lick her own urine up from where she would pee on the floor. And she even went as far as to bite the head off of a dead
1: bird. Oh my God, what are these living conditions?
0: To me, personally, I wouldn't look at someone, whether I knew that they were epileptic or not. I wouldn't look at that person doing that and say, you're possessed. I'd say this person has been through something in their life that has severely altered their brain chemistry and made them severely mentally unwell, and they need help, much like those other priests said, seek medical attention.
1: Yeah, nothing about that screams possession to me. It screams that this person needs some serious help. It screams psychotic break or mania, which
0: both things can be caused by temporal lobe epilepsy. Right. It was when priest Ernst Alt saw these behaviors that he decided that she was not epileptic at all. She was possessed. He got permission from a local bishop named Joseph Stengel, who agreed to send a priest to perform the exorcism. Arnold Renz was sent to their home with orders to do it all in secret. See, here's the thing. If you're getting the go-ahead to exorcise someone, but you have to do it secretly, there's some shady shit happening. Something just something feels off. Like we know what's going on with her parents, right? It's it's almost like the paranormal Munchausers by proxy, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's actually it's pretty much exactly that. Yeah. But um, these these priests, like this this guy Ernst Alt and Joseph Stengel and Arnold Renz, all of these these men that were complicit in this exorcism, the fact that they had to keep it a secret is bizarre to me. And it makes me feel like they knew what they were doing. They
1: knew that she wasn't possessed. They knew that she was mentally ill. 100%. And I, You know, this might be a little bit much to say, but I wonder if they were making a lot of money by doing this. That's a really good question. And... You know what? That's pure speculation. But it makes me curious as they were privately hired. That I wonder if they were getting paid possibly to do this. But they could have been doing it for free. I don't know. There's
0: no one specifies if they were paid or not. Because that, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a very good possibility that they were. But again, it's just. Speculation, Total speculation, but I think that's something to think about. Over the course of the next 10 to 11 months, Arnold and Ernst performed 67 exorcisms on Annalise. These sessions lasted up to four hours. She believed that six demons inhabited her body. Lucifer, Cain, Judas Isocrat, Adolf Hitler, Nero, and Fleischman. Did you just say
1: Adolf Hitler? I sure did. I mean, he was evil, but he wasn't a demon.
0: Well, neither was Nero. Nero was the Roman emperor we talked about last episode. Are they just making shit up? Fleischman was a corrupt priest. Like, none of the the only two here, like, Lucifer is the devil. Cain is technically not a demon either. You, You got the mark of Cain. So, yeah, it's just... God, this is just so shady. It really is. The whole thing is. All of these demons were fighting for power inside of Annalise and they would communicate through her by growling. All the while, she broke all of the bones and ripped the tendons and ligaments in her knees from the aggressive and frequent nature of her kneels for
1: prayer. Oh my God. Ripped the tendons? I mean, I mean and yeah, broke like, the bones, broke all of the bones. But like, I, oh, my God, that pain is unimaginable.
0: Over the months that they were removing the demons from her body, she stopped eating and eventually died of malnutrition on July 1st, 1976. Her exorcisms became sensationalized for the media. And due to this, her parents and the priests were charged with negligent manslaughter Arnold and Ernst were sentenced to six months in jail and three years probation, but her parents didn't receive a punishment. There is a appeal or criteria in German law called suffered enough. And it's basically if the people who committed the crime have suffered in a comparable way to the sentence they would have
1: received, then they do not get sentenced at all. Mm. I don't my personal opinion, I don't think that what Annalise suffered equates to what they went through. No, I mean, not Annalise, at all. Annalise had psychological warfare, essentially, and then not only that, but she was dealing with physical abuse in a way, and that's just that's fucked up. not once
0: during these exorcisms, during this period. Did someone say stop? Wait a second. This girl went from a healthy weight. She now weighs 70 pounds. She's brittle, skin and bones. She's wrecked her knees beyond reparation. She refuses to eat, drink, or get any sort of medical help during these exorcisms. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Maybe something else is going on here. Maybe we should get her to a hospital. Anything. Maybe... Maybe we should stop what we're doing and let her regain her strength. It's just, it's monstrous. Like medical attention, medical help aside, everyone here was complicit. And it's talked about how one of her sisters actually ran out of the courtroom sobbing because, I mean, through the entire trial, the prosecutor was very adamant in saying that if she had received medical help, even like, a week or two weeks before she died,
1: she would still be alive. Kind of part of the reason why I always say that humans are scarier than ghosts or anything because it's, the, it's evil like this in the world. Well, people
0: don't fully understand the weight of manipulation from someone that you trust and someone that you love. And, you know, she was the kid, right? Yeah. Those mm-hmm. were her parents. Her parents had an obligation to be the people, to say, stop. The priests had an obligation to say, stop. Everyone reneged on their, on their previously promised obligations. When you become a parent, you assume certain responsibilities. When you become a priest or a spiritual healer or a leader in your community or among the people, you take on certain responsibilities. Everyone here was negligent and everyone here deserves jail. They failed, Annalise. Absolutely. Now, here's a good example of a possession getting in the way of someone facing legal justice. When someone believes that a demon is the reason that they committed a crime and they don't remember doing it, the answer should not be to let the person get away with it. Or try to, at least. It was February 16th, 1981, when Arne Cheyenne Johnson took a five-inch pocket knife and killed his landlord, Alan Bono. This was in Brookfield, Connecticut, and was the first murder to ever be committed in the 193 years that the town was around. The weird thing was that Arn was a normal teenage boy. Nothing could have hinted at him committing this atrocity. He had no criminal record. He was liked by the community. He was liked by his family. He had a good relationship with a woman. He had a good relationship with his family. But here's where things get interesting. When he was arrested and put on trial, he claimed that he didn't murder Alan or make the choice to do it. The devil made him do it. Do you know what case I'm talking about? The Conjuring Universe. Uh hmm Arn was engaged to a woman named Debbie Glatzel, and she had an 11-year-old brother named David. The summer before all of this went down in 1980, David said that he kept seeing this old man who would taunt him. At first, David's story was ignored as the excuses of a little boy trying to get out of helping out around the house. But it only got worse. As it does, David started waking up in hysterics, saying that he was having dreams of a, quote, man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features, jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hoofs, end quote. The Glatto family contacted a priest, hoping that blessing the house would rid David of his visions, but it didn't work. Enter Ed and Lorraine Warren. The family contacted them, hoping that they could help. Things really got worse from there. The Warrens recall how strange the case was from the get-go. Lorraine, in an interview, said that Ed tripped up the stairs while entering the house, and when another member of their crew laughed, he too tripped. They all took that as an omen. David started experiencing physical symptoms. Invisible hands would strangle him and he would start having violent seizing episodes. It's quoted on all that's interesting as such. He experienced strangling attempts by invisible hands which he tried to pull from his neck. And powerful forces would flop him rapidly head to toe like a rag doll. David started seeing that old man again. He had a white beard and was dressed in a flannel and jeans. As these things progressed, stuff began happening around the house as well, specifically in the attic. As it normally goes, David started talking in different voices, and he was heard saying lines from Paradise Lost in the Bible. There was a split decision when it came to him, though. The Warners thought that he was possessed, but doctors and psychiatric professionals said that it was a learning disability. But can you guess what happened next?
1: He got possessed.
0: That didn't stop Ed and Lorraine. As they performed different exorcisms, they said that David started levitating and exhibiting disturbing behavior. At one point, he stopped breathing. He also apparently spoke of the murder that was soon to come. It was October of 1980 when Arn had enough. He started telling the demon to leave his, quote, little buddy alone, end quote, taunting it as well. He also told the demon to enter him instead of David. Leave David alone, take me instead, sort of deal. Well, I'm guessing the demon took that opportunity. Uh, Yep, the demon did exactly what Arn requested. Him and Alan were not enemies. In fact, they were well acquainted. One could even call them friends. But on the fateful evening that Alan Bono was killed, him and Arn were arguing. Arn viciously stabbed Alan dozens of times in the chest and stomach and then ran away while he bled out. The police said that they were arguing over medial things, but the Warrens were insistent that Arne was possessed. You see, when David came down with a good old flu called demon possession, he had been hanging around this particular well. Arne had taken it upon himself not heeding the Warrens' warnings to go investigate it. It was later stated that he saw a demon inside of the well. The same demon that possessed him until after, and I repeat, AFTER, conveniently, he killed Alan. The police, understandably, were not buying it. They did not believe that Arne was possessed. They thought that the murder was a true act of defiance against the law and Allen's well-being. Yeah. I can't blame them. Yeah. Can't, can't fault them for that one. Yeah. Arne's attorney, Martin Manella, tried to convince the jury and judge that Arne was, quote, not guilty by reason of demonic possession, end quote. However, even though society was in the throes of what we know today as satanic panic, the Warrens and Martin were accused of profiting off of a tragedy. The judge, Robert Callahan, much like the police, was not buying it. He basically said, yeah, no, this is really dumb, guys. <laughs> it's literally impossible to prove such a thing had occurred.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point.
0: That it's dumb.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, how are you about to
0: prove this right now? Eventually, Arne was convicted of first-degree murder in November of 1981 and sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, but he only
1: served five of those years. Oh? I was right. So he just got, like, let out, or was he transferred to somewhere else? Uh, He was let out.
0: That's it? That's it. That's all. He was let out. Probably went on with his life, got married,
1: you know? I don't know why I expected more.
0: Something that goes hand-in-hand hand with the world's fear of demon possession is the persecution and phobia of witchcraft. It was March 6, 1930, when Clothilde Marchin's son, Henry, came home to find his mother dead on the first floor landing. Initially, it was believed that the small French woman died due to a catastrophic fall, but the medical examiner found bloody wounds on her body indicative of an assault, and he also detected traces of chloroform. This was now a murder case, so the police were called in. They suspected that Lila Jimerson and her friend, an indigenous healer, Nancy Bowen, had something to do with it. Although the evidence they procured to come to the conclusion of Lila being involved is not stated and very unclear. Oh, okay. Very helpful. So helpful. Lila, after her arrest, admitted that Nancy was involved, which is how they pulled Nancy in. It was found out that she had convinced Nancy that Clothilde was a, quote, white witch, who used her supposed witchcraft to kill Nancy's husband Charlie, who is also a healer in the Seneca tribe? They'd used a Ouija board trying to find out why Charlie had died. Charlie's spirit came through the board and spelled out, They killed me. And when asked who, it said Clothilde, even going as far as to spell out her address at 576 Riley Street in Buffalo, New York. But it took a little bit of convincing on Lila's part to really get Nancy on board. Nancy started getting letters from a Mrs. Dooley, which I think in the early 1900s, that's like the Mrs. Smith of their time, you know? Mrs. Dooley. That confirmed her and Lila's suspicion. This Mrs. Dooley, and I'm saying that with verbal quotations, claimed that Clotilde was jealous, so she hexed Charlie, and when her spells didn't work, she decided to use them to kill him. Nancy went to the Marchand house and confronted Clothilde, accusing her of murder she then swiftly pulled out a hammer and beat her to death before shoving a rag soaked with chloroform down her throat it turns out that lila did all of this because she was one of many women having an affair with mr marchin and was in love with him
1: oh my god they killed this innocent woman for what
0: yeah well this brings me beautifully beautifully into what we're going to be talking about next episode. Oh. Can you
1: take a guess? I want to say witchcraft.
0: Yes. We are going to be going heavily into witchcraft and the fear of such and how it's affected our society and even a little bit into some hauntings next episode. But our main focus will be the Salem witch trials. So stay tuned for next time, guys, because... Hopefully, we will not have as many technical difficulties as we did this time. (laughs) We can only hope. But don't forget to leave us a nice review because it means a lot. And I will cry if you don't. And um, Pamela will have to deal with my incessant phone calls where I'm blubbering a blubbering mess.
1: And I will cry in the shower where no one can see my tears.
0: And also don't forget that our episodes come out bright and early. Every Monday at midnight, as soon as the clock hits the 12 and your horses turn back into rats and your carriage turns into a pumpkin, throw those glass slippers off. You don't need them anymore. You can listen to our new episode. Hell yeah. Let's close the case file on demonology for today. We are so excited to see you guys back next week. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram haunted.detective and on TikTok haunted.detective.pod. Bye. Bye.